Hello everyone and welcome to another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster and I'm the online editor of Motorsport magazine and I'm joined by Ben Cousins, the former motoring secretary of the Royal Automobile Club and Alan Hyde behind the camera doing the, all the audio wizardry that you can hear at the moment. Um, this is our third talk show and if you missed the first two then do please have a look on SoundCloud and YouTube. Search under Royal Automobile Club and have a listen. There's over an hour with Ross Braun and Nick Fry talking about the demise of Honda at the end of 2008 and, of course, the birth of Braun GP. There's also a 40-minute interview with the 23-time Isle of Man TT winner, John McGuinness. Now, today, we have a real treat for you. We have Sir Sterling Moss here in Pall Mall. A very warm welcome, Sir Sterling. Um, it seems stupid to start with some facts about you because they are so well known, but I was looking on the internet yesterday and sort of coming up with some headline figures. And of the 527 races you entered in your sort of first career, you finished 375 of them and you won 212 of them, <laughs> which is a win rate of 40.2%. Um, to put that into perspective, Michael Schumacher only has a 29.6% win rate. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I mean, it is, a, it is a truly astonishing number, especially when you think about the reliability, um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. It's uh, absolutely amazing. But in light of that number of races, we're going to focus on just two today, um, the Monaco Grand Prix and the Mille Miglia, of course. Monaco, what, which year? 61? All, all, all years. Oh, all, yeah, oh, we'll, we'll have a look, right. at, look at all of them. Right. And, uh, and the Mille Miglia and um, your memories of those races, because we are in the month of May. So uh, just to kick things off, your first... Um, win at Monaco was in the 500cc Jap yeah. back in, let's get this right, 1950. Right. What was it like seeing the circuit for the first time? Because it wasn't a circuit you could go and practice on or learn. No, but it, well, one you could quite easily learn because you can walk around it, you know. But, uh, no, I mean, it, it's one of the great circuits because the public is so close. It's, it's a very private sort of place, you know. And you can, you can actually see the people's faces and all that. And uh, I, I guess it was really was certainly one of my favourite races of all. And was it, it must have been a circuit that you had to build up the speed with, because um, there, was, there was really no, um, there was no margin for error at all, was No, well, I, I was very lucky to go in the 500cc cars to start with, because I mean, it's very limited in power by compared with Formula One cars, you know, and, and it suited really well. I, I can remember going there and thinking, you know, the road's quite wide, and the, the car did handle terribly, really well. And of course, one didn't have problems of brake fade that much and so on. And uh, just just being in, in, Mo in Monte Carlo is, is, you know, is very special anyway. And it, well, just saying that, you know, when you were there in the 500cc car, the, the roads felt nice and wide, the, you know, yeah. you didn't damage the brakes. Um, how did it feel when you first got into a Grand Prix car on the circuit? I guess the road got a little bit narrower. <laughs> When you say a Grand Prix car, you mean to, to, to Maserati yes, or something like that? Yes, the 250, like. yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, if you know the circuit, I mean, the difficult, one of the difficult corners there, of course, is, is, the, is the tunnel. And that's difficult, not because of what it is, but you have to turn in before you can see the exit. And, you know, that's quite, quite a difficult thing to force yourself to do because you're doing there, I think, in my day, probably just over 120, maybe, round about that. And, and you have to turn, it, turn in to get round the corner and, and without being able to see where, where the devil you're going. So that was quite difficult. 
it's nice nice to hear people talk about a corner in the tunnel because nowadays there isn't well there is still a corner but in a modern f1 car it's it's not yeah, really treated as such flat, no exactly you, d- you did in my time yes <laughs> in, mind you the 500 i'm sure was flat yeah <laughs> so that would be one good thing um and where what was the secret to being faster monaco because there's, I mean, there were so many corners. You, I guess, power was slightly taken out of it to a certain extent. But how, where did your speed come from? Well, I mean, it's it's such a it's a proper road circuit to start with, which is which is really nice. And you know, the the nice thing from my point of view is, you know, you go down towards the station, and on the left there were, you know, a couple of, a little. Uh, Bistro, we go there for a drink now, uh, on and off, and and it ha- had so much, you know, so much atmosphere there. And I'd, I've heard stories of you spotting people on the way around and waving to them every lap. Is yeah. it, are those are those true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, two two good-looking girls going down before the station, actually, on the left, and every every lap I'd blow them a kiss, you know, and so. <laughs> That was, you know, it was that sort of circuit, and that was that was why it endeared itself to me. Sorry, Ben. I just, I um I should say before before Ben jumps in here, we have uh, some books on Sterling. So a couple of your scrapbooks. They're yeah. not the real thing. Uh, we've just been talking about them. You have over just under sixty color coded scrapbooks at home, which is oh, incredible. More, more than that. Maps, more than that. So which oh, maps yeah. your entire yeah. career on on two legs and four wheels. Um. So we'll 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 dip in and out of the the published ones in a second. Right. But sorry, Ben. I I interrupted you there. Uh, not at all. I was going to say. I mean you. Monaco is most famous for being a single-seater race, but of course there was the odd year in '52 when it was run for sports cars. A uh, couple of questions. One is there's a the lovely picture of a very what would be a very expensive crash now of about 20 million quid with a couple of C-types, a DB3S, and a Gordini all in the wall. But what did the drivers make of it when the Monegasque said we're running a, a Grand Prix for sports cars? Or did you did you we were up in arms, or did you just say, oh, it's no, a car, I mean, we'll race it? I, I think I think it's such a popular event. I'm sure. I'm sure that every every driver really was, a, you know, it was the, the the diamond in the crown sort of thing. And I think every driver, um, you know, looked forward to Monaco. Very important event. Now, in that race, you got black flagged eventually, having extricated you from yourself from the wreckage of the uh, the crash, and you got up to fifth. The Monegasque are slightly notorious for making the rules up um, to their own devices. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a bit frustrated by that? Yeah, very frustrated. I mean, I, I just in, enjoy going going there and, and having the fun of what was a hundred laps in those days. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, we were, we were we went into the hotel to Perry after this for a, for a coffee, and uh, there was a dear old lady sitting there. That the, the, the side said, uh, "Are you one of those young men making all that noise?" So he said, "Yes, I'm afraid we were." She said, "Well, what were you doing?" So I said, "Well, we're practicing, so we need to." Oh, she said, "Can't you go and practice somewhere else?" <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, I could feel for actually. <laughs> there was, I mean, there was a sort of a carnival atmosphere at Monaco um, in those days. Well, I mean, it, it was it was just well, it's holiday places, yeah, you know. I mean, one, one thinks of Monte Carlo, and you know, of course, the casino and the racing and all the other things they have. You know, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Looking at the the kind of the whole weekend and the the atmosphere and everything like that, where does the Monaco Grand Prix sit in your sort of top Grand Prix? I'm, I'm sure. Oh, British I, Grand Prix I think is, is uh, in the top two or three of my all my races, actually, I would say, yes, yeah, certainly, uh, because um, uh, I remember what the in '61, I think I'm right in saying that. Um, uh, the, all the race for them, remember, was was hundred laps, 
and I'm following, the, I'm leading with the Ferraris just behind me. And uh, right the way through uh, the whole race, I mean, I was within three three seconds or the, the rest of the field of, of catching me. And three seconds isn't that, that far. I mean, when you come to these hairpins, I could see the drivers across, and I'd wave at them as though, you know, I was, wasn't in any hurry when I'm as fast as I'm going flat out. But, uh, you know, it's, but it's uh, something very special. Uh, Sterling, you've, you've talked about the Maserati 250F before. Yeah. And obviously, the Lotus 18, you won two races in Monaco with that. Which, what are the biggest differences between those? I mean, obviously, the, there's the obvious ones, but in terms of actually driving around a place like Monaco, if you could go and do a lap now, which would you choose? Would you choose the Lotus 18 or the Oh, oh certainly, the, yes, certainly, obviously, I'd take that because it was a much more sophisticated car, you know, and uh, certainly easier to drive around there. But, but having said that, driving the two, 250F, it was such a, that, that is really probably the nicest front-engine car that's available any time. And uh, so that certainly made it a lot easier. Yeah, and there's something I've always found quite interesting about Monaco is people always talk about Monaco specialists. And there are some drivers, you know, even current drivers, who always go better at Monaco. Uh, Pastor Maldonado, for one, was always yeah. blisteringly quick at Monaco. Yeah. Um, which was surprising given his... his um, his ability to crash, um, but he was very, very quick. <laughs> yes. um, what, which drivers from your era did you always have to keep an eye on at Monaco? Were there particular ones that at other part of the season you wouldn't have to well, watch? Well, I would say one of the quickest drivers at, uh, around at, at that time, of course, was Tony Brooks. I mean, Tony Brooks was ama amazingly fast. And yet he's a very quiet guy, and, and so he didn't get nearly as much publicity as like myself, because I would perhaps date a girl here and there. And he, he was a very good boy. <laughs> when you won in 1960 in the Lotus 18, and I think in one of your books it says that the, uh, there were two cracked engine mounts and the front of the engine was held in the car by the, the water hose. Um, Con Chapman obviously built that one just to, to last long <laughs> enough. Uh, but then you're back next year with Rob Walker again in Lotus 18 again. And of course, you nearly got off to a very hot start because um, Al Francis had to weld some tube. Was it the roll bar or something back no, on? There was something. That, um, I know, you know, when you're standing around, you're looking like this. I said, um, Alf, isn't that, isn't that a crack there? <laughs> and uh, yes, it is, my God. <laughs> so we're now, of course, on the pre grid. So he goes off to fetch the gear to come back. He didn't have, he didn't have uh, ele electric. Uh, welding, he had, had gas, and of course everybody's looking in like this. And when he lights the glass, gas up, realizing I had about f fifty gallons of fuel on something, everybody pulled back, <laughs> and he, he went. What he did that he mended the car literally there on the pre on on the pre grid. Did it, did it never occur to you to say to Colin, do you think we could make this a little bit stronger? <laughs> Co Colin was not was uh, he, he he was a, a genius at you know design, but he certainly did did. Um, build a, a too lightweight car, really. I mean, I had, I had a lot of wheels come off, my, mostly uh, in my career of, of uh, lo Lotuses. Uh, I remember that I happened to win the, win the US Grand Prix in 1961, and they made me a birthday cake because it was on my birthday. And it was just, this was after we were having, you know, drinks and what have you. And they made me this birthday cake with, with my Lotus on it. And I, I took the, my, the, the knife, cut the wheel off, and said, would you, would you like to give this to Colin Chapman? <laughs> and, uh, which I thought was quite funny. He, did, he didn't have <laughs> much of a sense of humour, actually. <laughs> was, it, was it harder to push in a Lotus mentally, because you knew it was such a fragile car? 
Yes, but is it, but the point is, you drive it because you know it's likely to win. I mean, you know, the Lotus uh, was not nearly as nice as as the Cooper. Cooper, you could throw around, you could you could really abuse it. It was a ni a really enjoyable machine to drive. The Lotus was never enjoyable, other than the fact that you the potential of success. Now we've got a picture in the book uh, of the '61. I'm sure Alan will pan into this later. You took the side panels off. Was this just so you could distribute business cards um, <laughs> going around the hairpins? No, that was or to show the girls your nice legs? Or no, was there a purely a race. Remember, the race in those days was about now three and three, three and three quarter hours long. And I said to Alf, Look, aerodynamics don't really matter here. It would be really nice to be, you know, just much, much freer. And and so we took it off. I mean, because they weren't doing any, weren't doing anything particularly good for the car. I mean, they weren't aerodynamic or anything like that. Was uh, was Monaco one of the most tiring tracks because of the the constant gear changing, the constant braking and corners? And yes, but it's so it's so exhilarating to drive. It's so rewarding. You know, if you, I mean, you know, if, if if ever you're in a race, the most difficult place to be is leading, because it's much easier to follow somebody than it is to lead. And uh, and there's no doubt that the, the the Cooper was the nicest car to drive, but the Lotus was was that much quicker. Just we we touched on the '61 race, which you know maybe many people consider, I think quite rightly, to be one of your greatest ever Formula One races. Yeah. Um, how how <laughs> it seems like a very stupid question, but how did you keep finding more and more time and speed throughout that race? Because it. For someone of your talent by 61, you would have thought you, you would be flat out at Monaco, but you kept finding more and more time throughout the race. If, if I'd, if I'd, I think you'll find that if, I'd, if I had done the race, the th three and three quarter hours, whatever, if I'd done that um, pole time, I'd have only been about 20 seconds quicker. And, and uh, which just shows you really how much how much pressure was on. The only way the only way that I could keep the concentration up because being being in the lead is pretty lonely, you know. But you can look in the mirrors and see things. But I mean, um, I, I would go. I, I'd come to say a, a bit of Armco or whatever, and I say, right now I'm going to try and do the perfect lap, which of course you can't do the perfect lap; it doesn't exist. So then when I got to the next uh, thing, I'll try, right, I'll try it and get a perfect lap here, and that's sort of driving you on all the time, or driving one's you know ability as hard as you can. Um, now, studying, we have a lot of reader questions. Um, these aren't all about Monaco and Mini Milia, but some of them are quite quite interesting and fun. Um, so, just quickly, uh, there's Marco f um, here who's asking. You mentioned in the past that the Mercedes 300 SLR was your fa best sports car. Yeah. Um, what was your favourite Grand Prix car? He's wondering. I think probably just for enjoyment, uh, the Cooper. I think the the Cooper was probably uh, as nice and uh, user friendly uh, as any other. Although one has to agree that the the 250F was a beautiful car to drive as well. In fact, if the if the 250F had been built by Ferrari, it would have been even better because I think Ferrari uh, technology and so on I think was better than Maserati. Maserati, from the point of view of b b building a car with the right balance and all that, it certainly had to be the 250F. So I, I also think it's one of the most beautiful cars ever made. It's yes, exactly. Yeah, it looks like a Grand Prix yeah. car. Yeah. Um, there's actually another question here from Marco, that, and he's wondering how much experience do you have of the pre-war Grand Prix cars, um, the supercharged Mercedes, Auto Union? Have you have you ever driven those? No, never, never, never driven one. Um, 
I would be interested just to try one, but I, it, it doesn't excite me nearly as much as the cars that I drove. I think the cars of the, you know, of the 50s and so on were really very exciting to drive. They're, they're a lot more um, technological, but I, always, I find it interesting because most drivers are always saying they want more power, more power. Um, and I don't think any auto union driver ever said, I need more power, no. I need more power. <laughs> no, but then you, you look at something like the Cooper. I mean, it's almost a perfectly proportioned race car, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. The, the wet front, rear, weight balance, track, to everything was right. Whereas you look at, say, the pre-war auto, auto union, and the steering wheel's just under his chin. I mean, the, the driver yeah. was very much not second. But they hadn't, they, they hadn't learned this straight arm. That was Dr. Farina. He's the one I saw, and he and he looks so smooth, and he's always like that, you know. And I thought, well, boy, that's the way, the way it should look. And so I enge- after that, following that, I engineered my car so that I had that space in the in the in, in the car. It, it obviously it worked quite well as well when you look at look at your results. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's yeah, very much. Um, now moving on to the Mini Milia. Um, you first tackled this in uh, Jaguar XK120. Yeah. What were your initial, I mean, obviously you would have known about the race, but what was your original, what, what were your first recollections of actually well, doing Well, you must realise that at that time we were developing disc brakes and I was with, with Norman Jewess and we were purely working on the brakes. And we, we read this thing, my gosh, there's a race up there in Italy. Why don't we go and enter it and just see how we do? And uh, I suppose we had to call the factory and ask Losty England. Anyway, they agreed and uh, went in. And to me, that was a very frightening race, I must say that, because, because I, did, I didn't know the circuit. And there's no way that you could, you could do a thousand miles knowing the circuit, other than if you have, which I did, you know, Dennis Jenkinson, Jenks beside me, with a rolling map thing that we call the toilet roll. And I think it was about 27 meters long. And on, that, on there, we'd placed down all sorts of notes so that when we're coming up a hill, I'd know Jenks would give me a signal like slow down or flat out and so on. So he had the whole lot in his, in his hands. And he, I mean, amazing really, because he had to obviously be looking down like this and with the G-loads and so on. Of course, poor chap was, was sick quite often. And he, luckily the other way. But, uh, and then you've got problems, like I said to him, look, you know, I don't know, it's gonna be very difficult. We've got to have a stop to have a slash. So, and so we tried out the best way of doing that and uh, stopped. Uh, but then we, I said, but look, there's no way we can stop on the, on the thing. When we get to Rome, which is where the first control was, um, when we get there, we'll, do it there. Well, when we come into Rome, they put up 75,000 grandstand seats. So I had to go go across behind something, have a quick pee, and go, it came back and it took me one minute, four seconds, which wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, so uh, when you first went there, you were just driving blinds then, when, when you oh, first I, went Oh, there. absolutely. I mean, we've, uh, when we first went there and started, we, did, we didn't know anything other than you know that well, we had, we're going down to Rome on, on the, we we knew the route well, obviously because that was fixed, uh, but but no more than that. But it was pretty relaxed. I mean, when he went in uh, 1952 in Norman, he he drove the car out there, didn't he? Yes, yeah, oh. well, exactly. I mean, you're more famous, obviously, for driving a German taxi to victory in '55, <laughs> but. Which, in fact, there's a picture behind me on the wall, and I'm trying to remember, is that the Raticos or the Futipas? You tell the story about how you had to do it in less than an hour, some astonishing average. That's, that's right, this was a Futa, I think. Right. And, uh, and we wanted to do it in, in less than an hour, uh, which was cause quite difficult. 
uh, which we, which I, th I think we managed to do, actually. I'd, I was lucky enough last year to come out to um, the Futa Pass and have a ride in an S a 300 SLR and just turning you were there with sort of doing onboard shots and things. And uh, what surprised me was just how relentless that pass is. It's corner after corner yeah. after corner after yeah. corner. And you always describe the 300 SLR as a very sophisticated, you know, smooth car. But it's and how lovely it was to drive over a long distance. But when I got into it, it wasn't sophisticated and smooth at all compared to modern machinery. I think people don't appreciate just how sort of raw these cars were and the noise and the, you know, I obviously couldn't get down behind the windscreen. Being yeah, but I mean, but when you're racing, there's, you obviously you're dri you, you use the steering wheel just to present the car to the corner. Then, then you use the throttle to, to, you know, to virtually to steer it. And, and the, the 300 SLR was a staggering car. I mean, really, well, I mean, we were doing speeds up to 180. I mean, the one which I think was probably the most interesting one, uh, the last Cremona to Brescia is 135 Ks. And on that, we averaged uh, 165 miles an hour, I think it was. There's a lovely bit of period film, isn't there, of you overtaking the plane? Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but planes weren't that fast. Though. Yeah, <laughs> the planes. You can see this silver bullet going down this straight road, and it's just going right into the distance. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier, Stone, that it was it was one race that really scared you. Yeah. Um, why did you keep going back? Well, because it's the most exhilarating, exciting race anywhere in the world, um, and it, it it just to me. I mean, I'm a racing driver. And to, to take part in an event like that one, I think is really is f just pushing, it, pushing the limits about as far as you can. But you, see, you, you yeah. always did it with a co-driver, whereas your great chum, Fanjo, he would never take a co-driver with him. No, but he? the reason he wouldn't take a driver is he had a crash uh, in Argentina and, and his co-driver was killed. And so he, he said, look, I'd, he would never take somebody else's, you know, never put them in that danger. Ah. Yeah, apparently. And because uh, obviously, Fangio finishing second in 55. I'd, in your opinion, that was, I mean, without a co-driver, that must have been an impressive feat. Oh, I think it's staggering. Um, really, I mean, the, it, it amazes me because Fangio certainly was faster in, in Formula One to, than myself, but I could usually beat him in sports cars, sports car racing. I don't know why. I asked him, I said, look, why aren't you faster in, in sports cars? And uh, in in sports cars, yeah, and he said because he likes to see the front wheels. I mean, which which is seemed, seemed to me a amazing thing to say, but he he liked to be able to see his front wheels, yeah. Amid the elation of winning in 1955 and Fangio second, did you think to yourself nobody's ever going to do that again? No, no, I, I, I mean we was obviously on a real high, and that's why we drove on up up to Stuttgart through the night after the race. We had some, you know, a party there in, in Brescia, and I thought, well, as this is so, they'd probably like us to be able to do a PR deal with, with the, the, the factory. So we, we just went on to get up there. Right. Good party, nice girls. I don't remember a thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, briefly, again, on the 55 Mini Mini, how hard was it? Because obviously, you know, you're, you're a racer and you. Um, how hard was it to ignore the Ferraris going off into the distance to, to start with? Because it was Castellotti who was spinning yeah, well, his rear well, wheel. Well, Castellotti was leaving black lines, so that as soon as I saw those black lines the way he was driving, it, was, it would have been impossible for, for that car. It was, I think it was 4.4 litre. 
a new new fry, and it'd be impossible. He, no way would he would he you know complete the event. So I felt quite you know quite happy about quite that. Quite relaxed about it. Yeah, exactly. So you, uh, I, I think I'm right in hearing that your you never really loved Le Mans because it was more a test of endurance yeah, than yeah. it was a speed. Was the Mille Miglia not slightly like that? Because I know it wasn't 24 hours, but you're, you know it was 10 hours, seven minutes. Um, there must have been an endurance aspect that came into it. Yeah, well, you see, the, the other good news about it is, is I was the only person driving it. You know, at Le Mans, you have to share it. And you know damn well you give it to the, your co-driver, and, and he comes back and he says, look, the brakes aren't as good as they were, He's pulling to the right and all these excuses. In, in the Mille, there's no excuses. It's good. The... Um, I was uh, thinking the other thinking the other day of what it must have been like to go from Mercedes in '55 to Maserati when and then you had two years a with big shock. Yes, <laughs> how, <laughs> um, describe the sort of the shock and the differences there. Well, I mean, um, going to the the Italians at Maserati, beautiful handling, beautiful handling car. I mean, handled better than any other Formula One car, but uh, but. It, which was still hadn't the reliability. I mean, I always felt that if I said to them, can we try, you know, special wheels with eight sides or something, they, they'd look in the big book and say, we tried that in 1915, it didn't <laughs> work, so forget it. You know, they had so much knowledge and understanding. And, and Neuber, of course, who was our team manager, uh, was a fantastic character. I mean, he really was. I mean, just to, to give you an example, a guy goes into a restaurant, you see, well, they can cut it out. Huh? A guy goes. <laughs> a guy goes into this restaurant. You see, and, and he, he's there. And he says, "Coy." He says, "Look at that." And he bangs his hand. He says, "Look at that." He says, the "Guy said, excuse me, that's my wife." He said, "Pardon me, pardon me." <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to dip into the the readers' questions again. Um, there's one here from Diego. Um, he wants to know the most thrilling corners you've ever experienced, and this could be Grand Prix, sports cars, Mini Milia, anything. Well, the thrilling, from you get thrilling because it frightens you, which can happen, and you get thrilling because it excites you, and I presume he means which is the most exciting. Um, obviously, because one I didn't know the Mille Miglia circuit as well as one would a short one. Um, I mean, there were so many corners on the Mille Miglia where you were. Were, were flat out, but they were blind. Yeah. They must have been quite something with Jenks telling yeah, you. Well, Jen yeah, but Jen Jenks, we'd been around and he'd, 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 we'd, you know, we'd decided exactly what, 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 we, what we were going to do and how we were going to Where did you play. ding the nose? That must have been a frightening, if only because you were frightened you might have been well out of the race. That was because I thought I knew, I thought we came to Pescara, I think it was, and we came there and, and I thought I knew, knew the road, and of course it wasn't the piece I thought it was. <laughs> So I had, to get, I had to drive off the curb and bent it, yeah. Um, I'd, I've heard the, the sort of bits of the story before, but wasn't there a pill that Fangio gave you before yeah. the yes, mini Did we ever work out what that was? I never found out. It was probably it blue. <laughs> 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 well, it clearly worked for Fangio, didn't it? He had a lot of pretty girlfriends. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, so, it's, But it was just something to keep you awake and, and keep you going. Yeah, exactly. And... and uh, he gave me this this thing and and Jinx, and I must say it worked perfectly. I mean, because it was really we, I don't know when we went to fit, to bed first. <laughs> I mean, it was well after the race, hours hours up up the circuit. Yeah. Well, of course, Jinx went back to his hotel, sat up, and wrote, wrote the entire report, and then put it in the Italian post box. Yeah, exactly. Back to London, amazing. Yeah, and with no notes at all, you realise that he had no notes whatsoever because he had nothing to write with. 
he was, read, he was reading the instructions to me. So it was quite, quite incredible. Amazing. So I'm, so I'm going to, I must keep asking these readers questions because they've, they've taken the trouble to, to send them in. Um, this one's a bit, a bit different. He's, uh, this is from Tom Neal, who is talking about the difference between Grand Prix drivers today and Grand Prix drivers in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And he's wondering which of today's F1 drivers would have been most suited to the driving style and personality of the, the drivers from your era? I would say Vettel, probably. I think Vettel, Vettel, I think today is one of the fastest, uh, well, as, as is Lewis, um, Alonso, whatever. I think, I'm sure that if the, if the drivers of today raced at the time I did, I'm sure they'd have been you know, just as outstanding, quite frankly. I mean, because, because you, you know, learning, the cars are completely different, obviously. I've never, I haven't driven a, a really modern car at all. But uh, they must be quite exciting and interesting to drive. The thing is, we've got all these buttons and stuff. Well, originally, of course, we didn't have those buttons, so you had meant the driver had to do it. But now they, you know, otherwise they've got 13, 15 buttons or something, haven't they? They can they can press. So I, I know we're really talking about Monica and Amelia, but um, looking at this trophy cabinet, we've got the, uh, the trophy you won for the British Grand Prix 1955, you've got the British Grand Prix trophy, you've got the tourist trophy, all of which have got your name on numerous times. Uh, in terms of, you, know, you're, you were busy as a racing driver. I just looked up a little stat, I think it was between 52 and 53, you did somewhere around 50 races uh, of all sorts, in almost everything. Um, it's pretty busy, given there was an off-season. Then even those days, you'd go and do inter stuff down in the, the Southern Hemisphere. Did it? Was it a case you just drove anything to get the experience and because you were a yes. professional racing but driver? Yes, I, I, I was a professional racing driver and I would just pick out whichever car that seemed the best best bet. You know, I mean, for instance, I was with, with Maserati, I couldn't, I couldn't drive a Ferrari, you know, because I was with Mazda. But, uh, and then, of course, with, with Rob Walker's cars, he, he would buy a, a Cooper or, or a Lotus. How do you think Lewis's social life would cope with doing 50 races a year? He's pretty fit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ac actually, it's amazing. As a driver, you have to be very, really very fit, I must admit. Really. But if you're racing every week, it's like, you know, like football. If you play it every week, it isn't that much to you. Yeah. When you were famous for, for never doing sort of fitness per se, you, your fitness was driving a car, yes, wasn't it? Yeah, literally. Yeah, I, I never, I never did it. They, they do a lot more work on the, on their themselves now. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty awful life to be a driver now. <laughs> you know. it's, it's different. I think it has its compensations at times. Have the best. Uh, we had the best times. I mean. Well, something I was, I was actually wondering on, on my way in here was, would you have enjoyed the modern hybrid era as a racing driver? If you know, if you were in your not as much, not as much as I did when I was in. I, I wouldn't switch my era for any. You know, even pre-war, and I mean, yes, I would like to have tried the cars and see what they were like, of course, because that's that's you know, because it's a competitor or or one I was going to drive, but uh, but not otherwise. I can imagine it when you look at modern Formula One today. There's every driver has sort of two PR people next to them with dictaphones. Yeah, they they would have had quite a tough job with you, Sterling, trying to get <laughs> keep you from saying things they didn't <laughs> want you to say. <laughs> yeah, well, that's. Yes, that's true, actually. You, you certainly yes. wouldn't have driven for Ron Dennis, would you? No, I don't think I would, no. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be high on my list. Uh. Yeah. Um, now, just, uh, we, we mustn't go on for too long, but we um, have a question here from Paul. Um, and there's also a question from Alan, um, who's doing the recording, that's sort of linked. 
Paul is wondering whether you still miss competitive driving nowadays. No, not really, because I know I wouldn't be competent. I mean, frankly, I, I enjoy doing something if I'm doing it well. Uh, it's much more fun to win than to lose. And I think I think if I did, if I'd, I mean, I retired when I was 83, and which I thought was a fairly good innings. Um, but uh, I, no, I, I, no, certainly I don't miss it that much. I mean, I would have said you're the motorsport's greatest ambassador uh, because you you're constantly out there, occasionally chastising the modern drivers for uh, their bad PR and telling them to get on and race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, I'm a it's been a wonderful life, though. Yeah. So t just briefly before we before we wrap it up, what are your what are your plans this summer? You're off to Monaco for the historic. Your, yes, um, going off to Monaco now, um, and then we, we as I. Watch British Grand Prix may go up there for practice, but certainly watch watch the race at home on television because it's such a good, you know. Martin tells you things that are going on you you might not know and all that sort of thing. I mean, I'm interested in in following. I, I don't really know any of the drivers, um, other than you know, hello. They know who you are, though. It's yeah, much better yeah, like yeah. that. That's the way it should be. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So just one or two things to do later this year. Well, there are, thank God, for X-Racing drivers, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so Stanley, I'm, uh, we are so privileged to have you in to the Royal Automobile Club um, to come and talk to us for so long. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your memories of, of Monaco and the Milli Media and so many other things. Thank you to the readers for uh, sending in questions. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Alan, for doing the sound. We will be back next month with another talk show, and we'll see you all then. Goodbye Great. for now. Thank you.